The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sectors. FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Um, so good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us for the second part of today's event. So my name is Caroline Kehan. I'm Head of Industry Growth at the Food and Drink Federation, and I'll be chairing our panel discussion entitled, What is Needed in the National Food Strategy to Create a More Sustainable and Productive Food Sector, whilst also helping the government to deliver its Build Back Better Plan for Growth and Leveling Up Agenda. So again, you'll have an opportunity to put forward any questions to our panellists. So please use the um, the box on the right hand side of your screens and uh, feel free to include your name and company. So I think much of the public debate about the national food strategy to date has been focused on improving the health of the nation and the natural environment, which is only right. But what has been missing is really a discussion about how do we ensure the food sector continues to be a thriving contributor to local economies, providing well paid and highly skilled jobs and also increasing the uptake of technology in the sector. And we've heard a lot from this morning about the fact that the UK is transitioning towards a more productive, higher wage and higher skilled economy. This very much is aligned to the industry's um, 2030 vision in the Food and Drink Sector Council report that is will be published on Friday. And we've got some measures in that report around growing our GBA by a third by 2030 and also doubling the industry's R&D spend by 2027. So we see the national food strategy as a unique opportunity for the government and industry to work together to enable the food sector to transition and focus on improving productivity, skills and innovation. So with all of this in mind, I invite our panelists to switch on their cameras. I know that they're there waiting and to give their perspective on what is a very timely topic of discussion. And I'm delighted to be joined by Jane Brookman, Acting Director of EIT Foods Northwest Regional Office, Ian Mace, Head of Government Affairs and Policy at Associated British Foods, and Stuart McCallum, um, National Head of Food and Drink at RSM. So thanks for joining us today. And um, if we perhaps start with you, Jane, it'd be great to kind of get your initial thoughts on what you think the priorities need to be. Thanks very much then, Caroline. Yeah, so um, as, as Caroline's just introduced me, my name's Jane, Jane Brookman, and um, I lead the Northwest uh, Europe office for a pan-European food systems programme called EIT Food. Um, we support the changes in the food system through connecting people and funding innovation, business creation, education, and public engagement activities. And so I'm very much from that point of view in my comments uh, from, from the rest of the um, discussion. I've worked in this space for um, about 15 years between businesses, the research sector and, and, and governments. And so, and that's how I've had such a long and fruitful relationship with FDF um, working together to try and help businesses um, with support in innovation and higher level skills. So, my wishes, and I think some of those points have been put on uh, through the discussions earlier, are um, around a greater appreciation for the complexity of the food and drink supply chain in both government thinking and in support measures. And I don't just mean grants, that was something that Ian was talking about earlier. Food manufacturing often falls between the cracks, uh, between government uh, departments, but 
as uh, Laura mentioned, I do genuinely believe that progress has been made to date, but more would be great. Um, I think that we need to support innovative businesses to both grow, um, which is an important thing, and also stay and have their success within the UK. And to do that, we do need a, a different levels of support than what is available now, particularly in England. We need a support across a range of grant types, um, sizes, other support mechanisms. We need things that last longer than, than some of the um, mechanisms do at the moment. And we also need to pay attention to local and national geographies. Um, I think we need support for things that are not maybe very um, sexy, um, such as knowledge transfer, benchmarking, cross-industry learning, and addressing those some of those capital uh, requirements. I, I really, really would be excited if we could get some deep demonstrators going, you know, with substantial and long-lasting support for SMEs. There's been there's some really good work going on in Ireland that around deep demonstrators and in other countries such as Holland. Um, and I think we need those to bring um, ideas through to market at scale, but we should be building on existing facilities and schemes wherever we can. Um, on the innovation skills area, I think we just need consistency. We need support for the next generation of leaders. We need to build on some of the excellent work that's already started in cross-supply chain programmes, SRC and EPSRC. And we also need to really maintain um, and, and build on the work on the knowledge transfer partnerships at KTPs. Thank you. Thanks for that, Jane. I'll ask Ian to, to go next. Thanks, Caroline. Uh, yes, good morning, everyone. So my name's Ian Mace. I've worked for um, ABF for almost 20 years. I used to be an accountant, uh, but uh, somehow I've ended up working in public affairs. Um, so for those of you who don't know, ABF is a FTSE listed global food manufacturing and fashion retail business. Um, in the UK, it's the largest agri-food business uh, from end to end. It owns brands such as Twining's Tea and Jordan's and Dorset Cereals, Robita, Patax, King's Mill, Silver Spoon. Um, it's also got large B2B businesses uh, such as British Sugar and AB Maori, which sells uh, yeast and baker ingredients. And it has a wide range of animal feed and farm supply businesses as well. Um, and my CEO, Dora Rest, is a member of the Food and Drink Sector Council. And as a consequence, I've been involved with various working groups um, over the last few years. I know we're here to talk about the National Food Strategy, but um, a bit like uh, my namesake, Ian Wright, um, I'd like to start with some sort of important context. So in 1960, the average household spent 33% of their income on food. Now it's 13%. And that improvement in the affordability of food is a key part of the increase in living standards that we've all seen over the last 60 years. Um, we also obviously seen an, an incredible improvement, I think, in the in the variety and uh, range and taste of some of the food that we're so widely available in the UK as well. Uh, and that's all been driven by decades of investment through the whole um, food supply chain, raising productivity and reducing costs and resulting in more affordable food. Um, I would also point out that we, we saw the benefits of all that investment during the pandemic when many, many food manufacturers large and small had to increase their production change their product mix um, or adjust their supply chains as we all went into lockdown and the hospitality sector closed down um, and we should be immensely proud as Ian said of what the people in the 
entire food supply chain achieved and delivered during that time. And I think the pandemic did demonstrate the vital importance of the food industry and therefore the importance of the national food strategy. While we're waiting for the national food strategy, the government isn't standing still. Um, it's currently introducing lots of regulations that address some of the issues that Henry uh, Dimbleby discussed in his reports. So you range from the plastics tax and extended producer responsibility for packaging to advertising and marketing restrictions for um, foods that are high in fat, sugar and salt, um, as well as we're also seeing things like uh, carbon pricing and obviously the big reform of agriculture policy um, to include a much greater emphasis on environmental outcomes. And behind each one of those regulatory changes is a really worthwhile ambition. And we all need to reduce our carbon footprint and in some cases to reformulate our products to promote healthier diets. The problem, I think, is that the scale and pace of those changes will add to the significant cost increases that the industry is already facing. And that, in turn, risks making food significantly less affordable for lots of people. But I do believe that there are opportunities for government and business to work together to find short-term solutions to that challenge. While in the longer term, it seems to me that the answer of how do you make food more sustainable um, and keep it affordable um, is increased investment and innovation and higher skilled workforces. Um, and I believe that will lead to even better businesses providing affordable, safe and nutrition, nutritious food in a much more sustainable way, all the way from farm to fork. Um, and that's not going to be achievable without attracting, developing and retaining a more highly skilled workforce. And then, yeah, we all know, don't we? Everyone on this call, I'm sure, is a big fan of the food industry that would be uh, working in it. Um, we know that it's uh, the largest manufacturing sector in the UK, bigger than automotive and aerospace put together. We know it's in every part of the country, and indeed all the four nations. Um, so I would hope that the government will take an active interest in the industry's proposals on that upskilling agenda, um, because it's got such an obvious relevance to their levelling up agenda. So I do think there's a huge opportunity here. We just need to work out how to grasp it. Thank you, Ian. And last but no means least at all, um, Stuart, if you wanted to kind of introduce yourself. Thanks, Carly. Yeah, thank you. Just a bit of background about me and also a bit more about RSM. Uh, I'm a partner and I'm based in our Glasgow office. I'm a qualified Scottish Chartered Accountant. My career has had food and drink, uh, I guess, throughout it from that day of qualification. My first role in qualifying was working with uh, an m &A team for the Global Chain of Hotels. And what astonished me when I globetrotted around the world was the quality of UK food and drink and how people in every part of the world absolutely appreciated and loved it. It really opened my eyes and I think just to that quality and the range of products that we have. Um, returning to Scotland, my career has either been in roles in banking or advisory, as I am now with RSM. My skills in banking included running a food and drink sector book, which was really informative about the, the dynamics of how funders approach uh, lending into the sector. Uh, and that, I guess, opened my eyes again to the many growth paths and plans that companies in the sector can take. Uh, so I've been with RSM for a total of about 14 years, uh, and I sit within the Glasgow as well, currently sitting at home in my home in Glasgow rather than in our office. Uh, and I've been supporting clients with their growth plans, understanding management information, helping focus and strategy. Many of them are in the food and drink space. 
Um, as we've matured as a firm, we've invested in having more set technology across uh, our, our, our UK firm and our global network. We've got 35 offices across all parts of the UK, uh, all the nations, and we're very regionally diverse. And I think that's part of what you said, Ian, is the food and drink sector is regionally diverse and, and it's important in so many levels. Um, we've also offices in every key country around the world, which has been another key factor around growth in the food and drink sector. We've supported clients. Um, I have regular discussions with my teams in the US and in other global parts of the world that are important export markets for the UK. Um, so we sit in the tier below the big four in every country and we'll fight with peers to be fifth, sixth or seventh in each country. Our focus is in middle market businesses, which are in the main SMEs, corporates and smaller listed entities. So really mirror the food and drink sector across the UK in terms of the type of entities that are, are, are working in the sector and we're working with as well. So taking all that into account, our sector approach has accelerated as even through the pandemic, we've seen growth helping existing clients, uh, winning new clients, and we don't see that slowing down soon. We're ambitious to further accelerate our growth and we see sector knowledge has played a large part in that success and we believe will help that going forward. We've got a UK manufacturing group and it's part of the largest subsector, as Ian highlighted. Uh, within that being food and drink, I took up a UK sector role just about 18 months ago to drive uh, more consistency across our, our 35 offices. Uh, we work closely with Meet UK, where we did a survey late last year on reviving and rebalancing regional economies through manufacturing. So it's quite relevant for today's discussion. And over the last 18 months, we've worked closely with Food and Drink Federation, where we've done sessions on data, digital uh, funding in the sector, uh, R&D, capital agencies, which have been key parts in terms of supporting sustainable growth. Um, that relationship with FDF has, has been brilliant. We've also done a range of virtual forums, which we've been able to bring clients from across the UK together. So I'm actually having a food and drink week this week because I've got a forum tomorrow on uh, strategic m and growth in the food and drink sector. So if anyone wants to join that, please contact me afterwards to get a place. Uh, we've been regularly publishing analysis in the UK food and drink exports uh, over the last couple of months. And we're planning to do the same in UK imports to understand What's the mix? What's the balance? Is it changing? So again, if people want access to that, you can follow me on LinkedIn or just contact me by email. I'll get you onto that. I think the panel discussion today is really interesting because I think you're right, Ian, this is such an important industry for the whole of the UK and it's so diverse, so dynamic and so many ways of growing pre-COVID. And I think there's a lot of learnings that have come through COVID that are just going to further ensure the sustainability of the sector going forward. I think Food and Drink Federation is at the heart of that in terms of making sure the industry has a voice, is cohesive and is actually, I think, understood. One of the things I, I think is key is just re-emphasizing the food and drink supply chain that, you know, from farm to fork is super important. All of these bits need to work and need to be aligned to help the industry, I guess, become even more sustainable going forward. So thanks. Thanks for, thanks for that. Thanks for that, Stuart. And I think, yeah, it'll be interesting to come back in a moment to kind of get some learnings from other sectors that, that you've mentioned that you've worked with recently. So I guess we've had a few questions come in in the meantime, so that's great. So let's kick off. Um, so we've kind of talked about the importance of the food and drink sector and, and some stats, you know, that we've heard before. And I think there's, there's, you know, we should definitely repeat those again. The fact that the food chain is delivering £121 billion of um, gross value add and employing over 400 million people and I think Ian and Stuart you mentioned 
sort of the regional diversity of the food chain. And I guess, you know, given the fact that we are, you know, spread right across the UK in every part of the country, given this national footprint, how do you think the food and drink sector could support the government's levelling up agenda, sort of in more practical terms? And we'll maybe start with um, Stuart. I guess you mentioned some work that you've done recently on levelling up. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to every single region of the UK has got food and drink at the heart of it. You know, so some of that is uh, people buying locally, some of it's pockets of experience or, or, or just the dynamics of local markets is where the, the food or the drink is, is produced. Um, you know, I think part of this is that regional diversity of the food and drink sector can support, you know, that sort of levelling up agenda. Um, you know, the Northern Powerhouse has been good, the Midlands Engine has been fantastic. So I think a lot of what we did with the UK, some of the, the, the kind of feedback was just the fact that you know, the regions and rural economies need to have better digital connectivity. You know, you can't use technology and digital if you don't actually have the infrastructure to support that. Uh, I think the focus on improving rural and regional transport links, you know, to allow regions to work more closely together, then as a UK footprint makes a lot of sense. And I guess prioritising regional projects over national projects, so breaking it down into what happens for regions, building up strong regionally to UK level. Yeah, no, that's really uh, uh, Jane. I guess you know the fact that your your office is based in the northwest, that regional sort of area. What what are businesses telling you, sort of on the ground? How do you think we it's, could sort it's of play northwest in? Europe, though, Caroline? Northwest Europe, ah, rather than, we, need to, we need to remember that uh, that um, I'm funded by the European Union, so everywhere is in the northwest. But yeah, I mean, I think I think that Stuart's point was was an excellent one which is you know that we are very well dispersed as an as an industry already but we we also do have um potential for within an in a innovation lens we have mm -hmm. potential for for maybe um working with regional um development type activities whatever you want to call them that used to be rdas in the back in the day but um mm -hmm. i'm thinking around the Midlands engine, around N2D2 support for automation, for example. Um, and and if you think about York, where you have the Nestle Centre there, and then you've got in, um, in, in the Birmingham area, you have Mondelez and Reading the same way. They can act as, as, as focal points, I think, for, um, for activities especially if they work with the local um, mm -hmm. with, the, with the local support mechanisms to provide a local ecosystem that supports innovative companies you've then got that that whole idea of having the large company that maybe would um, both help to develop those smaller companies as well as being a straightforward customer because anybody who's worked with small companies will know that that is not just about money is it it's about having that help to scale up and getting that information and understanding how the business works because often especially if you're a technology-led company you know how to do your technology bit but you may not know how quite how that fits in to the larger market and i'm thinking you know if you look at some of the um examples that we have around um in the in east 
in the east we've got Hethel Engineering I know that are doing really good work and again in the southwest we've got some really good examples and of course you know we all have to bow down to Wageningen and then say you know they've got it right they know how to do it and, and something like that would be would be fabulous if, or even something at a smaller scale would be great and I think that 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 would really help spread the um the, spread the jewels around the country even more and I'll come back to sort of the UK strength in that area in a moment, Jane, but I'll just bring in, Ian, do you, in terms of sort of the levelling up agenda, what do, what do you think the food and drink industry can do in terms of its contribution? I think it's, in one sense, it's relatively straightforward. It's providing good quality jobs, lots of investment, training and developing our people in all the places that we already are. We're already everywhere across the country um, and in some parts of the country you know we're we're a very significant part of the economy and and there's no way that we aren't as aren't don't play and i suppose the other thing to bear in mind is that there's the the knock-on effect on local engineering businesses local logistics companies local mm -hmm. marketing and design companies and, and everything else um, local advertising agencies so you know, the food sector touches so much else that i yeah. think if we've got a vibrant food and drink sector manufacturing sector then we will contributing to levelling up and it's just leveraging that and the more successful the food industry is the more successful levelling up will be. Yeah and that's a good point and Jane you mentioned sort of um, sort of our centres of excellence across the UK in terms of food and drink and I think you know it's fair to say the UK has a very strong reputation when it comes to R&D and product innovation but what about sort of process innovation? What do we think the National Food Strategy could do in terms of supporting more businesses to increase their use of automation, increase sort of digitalization? Do we have any sort of examples of where we think that the food strategy could look at that in terms of practical action? I mean, I think that some of the work that's been done out of Lincoln University has, has some very, very good examples of, of, of practical near market um, implementation type work that's going on between universities that are maybe um, a little bit further away from the sort of blue sky research. But I think what's important is that some of the support that Lincoln has, for example, is 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 linked in with Cambridge University as well. So it, it, it's not that the the Ivory Tower universities should keep away from this type of activity. So I think um, you, you know I think the Midlands Engine work. I know there's quite a lot of work uh, based out of Nottingham University where they're trying to engage with the local businesses and the the local sort of um, government organizations there to, to try and see how we can get automation um, into businesses but it does come back to that working in partnership but it also comes back to the point that um, none of this will work just by sharing the research you do we do need a whole um, group of measures and, and around some of that, those capital um, expenses and, and how they're dealt with because okay we do have a very strong driver now much more than we did maybe five years ago to get the automation um, into our uh, businesses but it's still not an easy um, an easy sort of thing to do from a from a financial um, point of view so especially for, for the smaller companies that want to grow and they may be lower margin mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. large companies yeah 
And I, I mean, I'll, I'll move on to Ian and Stuart. I know that there's some great examples, even, for example, in Wales. Um, and we know the Welsh government are supporting um, FDF Cymru and uh, a partnership with the Advanced Manufacturing Research Centre where they go into businesses, sort of follow the production line. Okay, what, what challenges are you facing? And, and then kind of developing the solutions with, with the business. Um, so I'll bring in Ian and Stuart here. Um, so yeah, I, I think, yeah, thoughts on sort of how do we get yeah. an increase in automation and technology? Sure, and I, I, I think Jane's absolutely right. It is about, a lot of this is about applying technology that is already out there. It's not about complete yeah. cutting edge new stuff. It's how do we do it? Um, and I think there's a couple of points I've made. So the first one is, I think there's a challenge for small business, small and medium-sized businesses in particular about knowing what's achievable. And what, what, it, what is out there that is already doing this, you know, automating processes that are already yeah. you know, automated by other businesses out there. We know how to do it as an industry, but the individuals don't even know it's, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think there's a, a second point, which is about the need to upskill your workforce at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you've got more uh, automated factories, you need a different um, level of skill in your workforce to be able to operate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I think the large large businesses, you know, they've got access to, to graduate recruitment schemes and they've got access to uh, apprenticeship levy and, and so on, and they can sort of find their way through that. So I think one of the things that we need to do is to remember that the food and drink industry is very fragmented geographically, as we've already discussed, but it's also got a huge number of, of SMEs. It's, it's, it's not like the automotive sector in that sense or, or aerospace. It's, it's lots and lots and lots of um, small and medium-sized businesses. And that brings lots of strengths like innovation and entrepreneurship and so on. But it means that getting the knowledge of what is out there to those businesses is a challenge. And I think that's where advisors play a part, business advisors, but it's also where the Food and Drink Federation, I think, can play a part in terms of bringing that knowledge about what is available and what's out there. Um, and I think there's a role for the Food and Drink Sector Council to do that as well across the whole supply chain. Um, it, it's a change of attitude and we need to, but, but people need to understand what they can and can't do, what is out there. And I was going to say, you know, certainly from a, if I sit in, in, in Glasgow and look at Scotland, you know, there's been a, a huge emphasis and awareness of the importance of manufacturing, but especially you know, food, food and drink manufacturing. And there's um, significant amounts of money being invested just outside Glasgow, kind of a, a, aligned to the, the Catapult programme across the UK. There's one of them in Glasgow, which is down at the Glasgow Airport. There's a National Manufacturing Institute being established, which is all things manufacturing, but the majority of what will be coming out of you know technology and showcasing is going to be for food and drink manufacturing. Scottish Enterprise have got a Scottish Manufacturing Advisory Service, which again spends a huge amount of time with um, you know, food and drink manufacturing companies explaining to them what they can do and how, as you see, and there are some simple things that can be done. I've certainly seen with clients that a lot of them put in new technology and then struggle to have the right people to maximise the benefits from that technology, that automation. Um, you know, aspects of what will drive this is, you know, capital allowances and, you know, R&D if you are innovating, you know, there are, there are, there are breaks and, and support that can come from that. But I think the underlying thing here is the collaboration of the industry and actually showcasing, 
you know, because I've been to a number of, of 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 forums over the years where you know you would you would get a factory tour. You know, this this in, this business has invested in this technology. Come and see it. Come and see it actually physically working, rather than theoretical. And I guess that's something we have to keep our fingers crossed that we'll get back to that. But I think that's what is that spirit of collaboration and the Food and Drink Federation being at the heart of sharing examples, making it easier, but also understanding that you have to have the people with the right skills to use a technology and you have to have the awareness um, in terms of well, back back to funding. You know, so again, banks super keen in the sector, you know, capital expenditure plans to enhance, you know, the productivity of your business using technology should be met with a very positive conversation. But a, a lot of that is as a sector you know, increases its, it continues to increase its profile, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, I think. You know, the more you see the benefits, see the results, funders will like it, government will like it. So just the snowball gets bigger and bigger and rolls uh, quicker and quicker. Yeah. I think, and I'd like to kind of delve into a bit of the skills aspect and also that access to finance point, Stuart. And I'd like, um, it's great to see the questions are flying in right now, so I'm trying to kind of keep track of all, all of them, but a specific question around sort of what's the time frame we could expect to see the new technologies and automations uh, sort of obviously we've got the big multinationals that are already doing it but maybe for the smaller businesses or medium-sized businesses what do we think would be a realistic time frame now I know there was a made smarter report published a couple of years ago that talked about a 55 billion pound um, sort of opportunity if the food um, sector were to adopt existing technologies over the next decade. But I think, yeah, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on what you think would be a realistic time frame to kind of get businesses doing this. Or it may yeah, be a tricky was, question. I think certainly the clients that, you know, I'm seeing that they're, they're continually contemplating, you know, when do they spend CapEx? How do they spend it? What would be the, the, the best way of funding it? What's right for the business? So I think the last eighteen months, if anything, has 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 just increased that awareness that all things technology um, can be very beneficial to your business. Have kept businesses going. So I think, if anything, the last eighteen months has probably accelerated people's awareness that I need mm-hmm. to understand some of the options that I could consider for my business. I think the the super deduction for for capital allowances yeah. might help to accelerate some of these plans. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it will it will all un- unwind through a, a process in terms of the tax benefits, but certainly it will it should help companies to maybe accelerate some of these plans. And I think there has to be a reasonable timeline. You know, you put in you know new new uh, technology, it's mm-hmm. not going to work perfectly from day one. You have to build in you know a getting up to speed back to the comment about having the right people to maximise the technology. And then out of that, again, we've seen a lot of people talking about the digital and data that comes from all that. You know, So actually, the Internet of Things sounds fantastic, uh, but it just increases the amount of data and it increases the amount of problems you may have with cybersecurity. So we have a number of uh, food and drink companies who are asking us to do cybersecurity reviews because they've invested in technology and they're now going, all right, okay, I've invested in that, but that all of a sudden puts me at risk in terms of my manufacturing processes are more digitally enabled. What happens if I've done all that and then something comes in and hammers my my production? So sometimes you have to be careful what you wish for, but I think going in with your eyes wide open, 
that mm-hmm. there are so many positive things that can come from technology and automation. And I do think the other thing, if wage costs continue to go up, mm-hmm. people are going to say, I need to look at automation and technology now because that metric's changing. Yeah, it's it's a definitely a solution. I think, yeah, just to add to Stuart's point, I think you could look at the um, primary production sector and just say that actually they're a few years ahead of us because they've faced some of those issues a little bit earlier, both in terms of the joined upness of the Internet of Things with the smart agriculture Mm -hmm. and things. So they've, they've been talking about some of these issues around actually working out which data sets to to listen to and which to sort of actually not take too much notice of and how to deal with um with the, with the vast amounts of data that they're getting and also it's changed the structure of their businesses in many cases because of this requirement for um, highly skilled people i mean if you go into a tractor nowadays it's got at least two sort of um, CPUs on it and and you, you often need to have higher level skills to actually drive one of them nowadays mm-hmm. um, and so I think that that's they're, they're a few a few years ahead of us but and also going back to the point about how how we can support that I think um, the the areas that Stuart's talking about um, in terms of peer-to-peer learning is really useful I know the Welsh Assembly Government do a lot with their CEO forum for example in the food sector where they're trying to address these and I think it's both an opportunity for the smaller and medium-sized companies to to identify what the problems are but also as you said to 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 be aware of some of the some of the solutions um i think i'd also like to you know um put in a mention for from a technological point of view for the um the ktm food sector group caroline the the fdf have also been um, fundamental in 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 helping to support in the future in the past and uh, hopefully in the future so it is around collaboration and getting people Mm -hmm. to to talk to one another and so that the larger companies that maybe can also talk to the smaller ones and and help them learn yeah i just add one thing caroline it goes back to a point that stefano made very eloquently i thought which is one of the challenges is uncertainty so uncertainty around what's happening on packaging and uncertainty around the government sort of solutions or proposals for net zero make investment harder so if we get the more certainty we've got the easier it is for businesses to invest and there's so much uncertainty in the market that having policy uncertainty on top is really unhelpful so government policy certainty and visibility for forward-looking would be really helpful to, to encourage yeah. businesses to make those investments which we hope the national food strategy will provide um very soon um so uh, again i will delve into this some of this we've had quite a few skills questions here but just to kind of wrap up sort of the area around access to finance so we know that and it is about certainty definitely but also um we know that we are going through sort of an economic recovery there's many businesses still struggling in terms of cash flow and sort of having that access to finance um to make sort of some longer term sort of investment decisions but again we are sort of hearing from many businesses that this is still a challenge having that access to finance what sort of again it's linking this sort of to the food strategy what sort of measures could we see you know we've talked about 
super deduction tax uh, benefits and then also the R&D tax credits? How do we get sort of more food and drink manufacturers engaged in what's already out there? If I, I maybe again to Stuart, shall we just or Ian? <laughs> I, I was going to say, so from my perspective, I think one of the barriers is there are so many different schemes called so many different things mm-hmm. that I think many businesses struggle to know what what is out there. So there is mm-hmm. a there's a facilitation communication piece in the middle somewhere, which I think people like like Stuart can obviously help with um, it's to get through that complexity and help businesses understand the stuff that's already available i think that's a key part of it yeah i think that the underlying aspect here is that you know the capital incidentally are are reliefs it's 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 a benefit that's there but the core of this is you know if i put my old um you know bank hat on banks in general like the food and drink sector and I think the greater clarity around the future direction of travel and the increasing sustainability should again it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy it should then you know make banks more comfortable uh, in terms of lending into the sector it will make them more creative in terms of how they're lending into the sector Mm -hmm. Um, you know the forum I'm running tomorrow has got you know some private equity investors uh, talking about why they're investing in the food and drink sector as a whole. So you know, at top of macro level, the food and drink sector is very very attractive from an equity and a, a, a debt uh, debt funder as well. And I think it's back to this: the more collaboration, the more clarity around the macro strategy, it just helps funders of either a debt and equity flavour to go. I like what's happening in that sector. I can support it. You know, the innovation piece, you know, we're seeing you know, smaller clients raising significant amounts of money in terms of venture capital uh, and the whole move towards, I would say, a, a more sustainable food production model, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, alternatives to meat, dairy, all, all variations across the food and drink chain is attracting a huge amount of invested appetite. So, you know, I think you have to go with eyes wide open. Why do you need the money? Who could you get the money from? And a lot of it is back to good old-fashioned relationships. You know, if you're with the high street bank, do you know them? Do you understand what's going to tick their boxes? Invest mm-hmm. a bit of time in it. And, and and I think the food and drink sector strategy that's coming out should just help to make that a more positive and a more beneficial uh, discussion for all because, you know, funders need to, to lend money to to survive and industry needs money to keep growing so it should be beneficial yeah and hopefully yeah it will sort of demonstrate the opportunities there and jane in terms of the businesses that you work with are they finding it easy to access finance um i think it's a mixed picture i think it's fair to say um i think stuart's sort of uh view on it is is is, is the right one and obviously there's in the UK and across Europe, there are a number of um, schemes such as EIT Food Run, one where we, we're trying to help early innovative businesses to actually get um, funding through both corporate and venture capital funding. And I know uh, my old uh, workplace, the KTN Run, um, uh, a sort of a in investment ready scheme. And I think, you know, you look at some of the um, growth in the um, ethical investment um 
houses, you know, such as Innovator Capital, I know I work with, they they are really interested in, in, in solving some of these really big problems through investment in small innovative companies. But that's sort of a bit different from the type of um, investment that is required for mm -hmm. um putting automation into existing businesses. I, th I think that they're, they're a little bit different, really. Uh, that's more about development of, of new types of innovation, which will help the broader um, economy in 10 or 15 years, but maybe not right this moment, as Stuart yeah. said, you know, the things like the, the some of the, the meat products and some of the um, other technology and automation, which will help in, in the future. So. Yeah. Okay, if we perhaps maybe move on to sort of, so we've got quite a few questions on the skills piece. Um, and we've we've heard probably earlier this morning, this sort of um, talk of this 500,000 unfilled vacancies across the food chain. Again, how do we, do we have a view on sort of how the national food strategy can help the sector move um, towards this higher skilled economy, sort of attracting talent, upskilling our workforce? I guess for now, for the current situation that we're in, but also for the future in terms of green jobs. Um, Ian, do you sort of want to maybe kick off on this one? Do we have a view as to what the food um, strategy can do to help us on this? So I think one of the challenges for the food industry has just been it's what I would say is a largely outdated image from a from a attractiveness perspective. I mean. As I said at the beginning, I've worked for ABF for 20 years and the number of people within the business who are absolutely passionate about working in food businesses, they love it. They would never work in any other sector. And once you're in, I think you see how fantastic it is and how you can build your career in it. Um, and and it's, you know, people love being in it. But that isn't the image from, from outside. Um, and I think government and the industry together could could do something about that and publicise just how attractive industries can be. The industry can be. I think there's it's directly linked to the skills piece as well. I think if you want to attract new people into the industry, you need to be committed to training and developing them and, and helping them to see that there's a you know, there are job prospects and promotion and opportunities and career development opportunities there. Um, but I do believe all that's eminently doable. It's it's, you know, we, we've seen publicity campaigns before, haven't we, for whole sectors to try and encourage people to, to join one sector or another. And, and I think we could do something very similar. Yeah. And there's an element as well of working with the schools and education programme. I think T-levels, again, would be a huge opportunity for, for food manufacturers to get out and engage with their local schools and colleges and the young people coming out of them and indeed with their parents um, by providing great, work experience opportunities as well. So, yeah, there's absolutely stuff that we should and I hope will be in the National Food Strategy to, to work in those spaces. And I think some of what you've just shared there, I think that is reflected in the Food and Drink Sector Council mm -hmm. report, which is obviously due out on Friday. So we'll, we'll definitely see yeah. more of the detail of that. And Stuart, did you want to come in? And is there any sort of learnings from other manufacturing sectors? I mean, I, I think what we're seeing with our clients in general and even our own business is a fight for talent. You know, we, we are struggling to fill the places we have to keep driving the, the growth ambitions of our own. 
business across the UK. We, we see clients struggling to attract people, you know, with, as you see, with the right skills. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of this is, I'm, I'm not utterly convinced the way the apprenticeship levy works at the moment is maybe the most proactive and productive for, you know, particularly food and drink sector and, and other sectors as well. So maybe reviewing how that works and what the impact has been, could it, can it be more impactful going forward is key. I mean, you've got regional variations, you know, in that. So your point about, you know, maybe interacting with local universities or schools in terms of different, you know, geographies across the UK makes makes a difference. So again, there's no one size fits all. It needs to be a bit more nuanced. But at the heart of it should be, you know, the industry is a fantastic industry to be involved in. It's going to be even more fantastic going forward. So why wouldn't you want to join it and get the skills and the experience you know, and, and, and the enjoyment from being in the sector as, too, as well, because I think that's really key as you've got to enjoy what you're doing. And, you know, obviously all my clients are in the food and drink sector, they have been like you, and they've been in, in, involved in it for many years. They absolutely love it, you know, and they're constantly trying to innovate, constantly trying to grow. So it's that spirit of, you know, this is a brilliant industry to be in. Why wouldn't you want to be? But it's got to be, it's got to be sold because there's lots of other industries across the UK that are equally fighting for talent. Yeah, yeah, the com- competition is definitely strong at the moment. Jane, in terms of sort of higher skills, I know that you work with many universities. Yeah, I mean, I think I think also I'd like to comment that um, on the on on the entirety we need to start engaging right from the beginning, and I think that actually it's not just the kids themselves that we need to convince it's the parents of the potential workers for us and I know um, I mean I know my organization is is starting um, has done quite a few day in a life type videos you know just to try and help find materials there I know I've been working with the IFST about Mm -hmm. trying to um, point some of the already amazing stuff out there that the IGD do, the FDF do, and Mm -hmm. and trying to get um, materials there because I think the career services don't know us and they don't do a good job for us. And I think that's a real problem. You know, all power to the people who go out there and go and talk to the schools and explain really what what can be out there. I think Mm -hmm. on the higher level skills, I do think actually we're, we're starting to get it right. I think that people are looking at putting money in and doing it across the supply chain. Again, another call for if people are finding, um, I really would recommend that they look at the KTPs um, as a as a way of getting good people into their business. And it's you know it does cost, but it doesn't cost as much as um, as, as employing the people directly. Um, that people often say it's like having people on a, a, a two year. Um, interview you know and that if you're at the end of it you want to pick them up you've got the option of doing that so um, again that would be I think in, in lots of ways lots of stuff is going really well in that area but unfortunately it takes time to come through doesn't it you know definitely and I guess you know as I said before the national food strategy will be sort of this is the time this is the opportunity for us to work together across the food chain, but across, across uh, with government on some of these solutions. So I, th- I think this is all we've got time for today. Kind of that time definitely flew by. I mean, some of the takeouts uh, I think we've kind of captured here is really the key will be collaboration on improving productivity 
um, upskilling our people and, and increasing the use of technology in the sector. I think the point around sort of policy certainty is really needed for investment. And I think hopefully the national food strategy will provide that. And as I said, yeah, we will be um, publishing the report, uh, the Food and Drink Sector Council report on Friday. And we're really keen to work with government on, on developing the actual national food strategy, which is expected to be published in early 2022. So I think now is the time to kind of engage with government on this. So I, I'd like to thank Jane, Ian and Stuart for your valuable contributions. And thank you to all of the delegates who've joined us today. Um, a recording of the event will be available on the FDF website. And if you're interested in finding out about future FDF events, you can visit our website, uh, www.fdf.org.uk. And we look forward to kind of seeing you at a future event. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The FDF podcast is sponsored by Clark Energy, sustainably powering the food and drink sector.